Father, we thank you that you are a God who speaks. We thank you that you've given us your word, that your hand of providence has allowed it to come to us. Lord, even this morning, I'm reminded of just the gift that you would uh, provide a translation into our language. Lord, it's a gift that not everyone on the planet today has uh, to be able to read your word and hear your voice on these pages in our own language. And so, God, we just stand here thankful for your word um, and uh, asking that you would speak to us today. Open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word. Pray that you would fill me with the Holy Spirit as I seek to communicate your word. And, and Lord, I pray that you would guide all of us by the Holy Spirit. Lord, that we would not just be hearers, but that we would be hearers, that we would hear clearly your word, uh, but that we would also be doers of your word. Uh, Lord, that, that, that we would have lives changed by your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, since it's been a couple of weeks since we were last in Esther, let me remind you of where we are in the story. A high-ranking Persian official named Haman had a beef with another official named Mordecai, who was a Jew. And in his anger, Haman manipulated the king of the Persian Empire into allowing Haman to make a decree that on one particular day, all the Jews in the empire could be annihilated. In God's providence, Mordecai's adopted daughter was the queen of the Persian Empire, Esther. And so, Mordecai and Esther put together a plan for Esther to ask the king to have this decree of annihilation reversed. In a series of providential moments, in in a series of reversals, though Haman was going to have Mordecai hanged, the king learned that Mordecai had actually once saved the king's life. So the king decided instead to have Mordecai honored. And though Haman was the second in command of the most powerful empire in the world, when Esther revealed that she herself was a Jew and that Haman was going to destroy her entire people group, the king ultimately had Haman hanged on the very gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. So at this point in the story, Haman, the enemy of the Jews, the one who devised this plan to wipe out the Jews, is dead. The king, at this point, has a favorable view of Mordecai and Esther. And so now the groundwork is laid for the king to use his power to do something to save the Jews, who at this point are still destined for annihilation. But in our text today, we see God's deliverance of his people. In fact, my sermon is titled, God in the Deliverance. Throughout this story of deliverance, one of the themes that we're going to see is that of celebration. Uh, When God's deliverance is announced, the Jews celebrate. And when God's deliverance is accomplished, the Jews celebrate. And in the end, the Jews make a plan to celebrate God's deliverance year after year after year. 
And so the main message that I want us to get today from Esther 8 through 10 is this. God's deliverance is worth celebrating. God's deliverance is worth celebrating. And I want us to, I want us to see three ways that we can celebrate God's deliverance in these chapters. First of all, announce God's deliverance. Announce God's deliverance. We're going to read our story as we go. Let's start with the first eight verses. Esther chapter 8, verses 1 through 8. Follow along as I read. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king. And she said, If it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows, because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews, in the name of the king, and seal it with the king's ring, for an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. Well, last, uh, last time, we saw a series of reversals, and here we see those reversals only continue in this passage. Back in Esther 3.10, when Haman asked the king for permission to annihilate the Jews, the king took his signet ring and he gave it to Haman. And that allowed him to do anything he wanted with the very authority of the king. Well, this time, the king took off his signet ring and he gave it to Mordecai. Uh, of course, more than that, uh, what we see in this is that everything that belonged to Haman was given to Mordecai. And then ultimately, the king gave Esther and Mordecai permission to send out a new irrevocable edict uh, to counteract the first irrevocable edict that Haman had sent out. Well, let's hear what that edict was in Esther 8, 9 through 14. The king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day. And an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews. To the satraps and the governors and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to each province in its own script and to each people in its own language, and also to the Jews in their script and their language. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring, 
Then he sent the letters by mounted couriers, riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. On one day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, a copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province, being publicly displayed to all peoples, and the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers, mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service, rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. Now, what you may not recognize just at first glance is that these words here, starting in verse 9, are a near verbatim reversal of Esther 3, 12 through 14, which recorded Haman's edict. Only this time, the edict contained what Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews. The first edict permitted anyone to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews and to plunder their goods on the 13th day of the month of Adar. But this second edict permitted the Jews to defend their lives and to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate anyone who might attack them on that 13th day of Adar. Well, this edict goes out, the news is spread, and let's see what the response to this edict was in Esther 8, 15 through 17. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white, with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews. For fear of the Jews had fallen on them. So the reversals continue in this passage. When Haman's edict went out, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes. But this time, Mordecai came out in royal robes and a golden crown. When Haman's edict went out, the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. This time, Susa shouted and rejoiced. When Haman's edict spread throughout the provinces, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting. This time, there was gladness and joy among the Jews with a feast and a holiday. When Esther was first taken by the king, Mordecai told her not to reveal her Jewish identity because it was dangerous to be known as a Jew. This time, many people are declaring themselves Jews because they thought that would be safer for them. And what I want us to see in this is that when the good news of deliverance is announced, it leads to rejoicing. In this chapter, what we find is exiles need deliverance announced to them. The Jewish people were exiles in Persia. They were far from home, and that was a vulnerable position on any day. But then add to that threats like Haman, and it was very difficult 
to be an exile. Well, the Bible says that the people of God today are exiles too. This world is not our home. Our citizenship is in heaven. We're far from home, and we live in a dangerous world filled with tribulation and temptation. And we need the good news of deliverance announced to us if we are going to make it through our time of exile. Thankfully, we have this good news of deliverance. There is deliverance coming for us, just like there was for those exiles. Paul wrote in Philippians 3, 20 and 21, Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Jesus died and was raised and ascended to heaven, but one day he is going to come again. All of us exiles who trust in Jesus as our Savior and our Lord are awaiting that day that our Deliverer is coming for us. On that day, as Paul writes here, he will raise us to immortal bodies that will dwell with him. He will reign as king forever, and he will make all things new. No more enemies, no more death, no more pain, no more injustice, no more sickness, no more sorrow, just eternal flourishing in the presence of Jesus forever. That's the deliverance that we have coming. And that's the news of deliverance that we need announced to us. And so again, let me remind you that your fellow exiles need to hear you announce that good news of deliverance to them. We've been given this promise of deliverance. And we need to remind one another of our hope. Of the deliverance that is coming. Imagine... Uh, between the, the announcement of the deliverance and the day it actually came, what it was like to live as a Jew. Do you think that there might have still been a little bit of fear? Because the day is still coming that has been decreed where anybody who wants can come and try to kill the Jews. So that day is still coming. And, and even though this, this new decree has, has been put into place and they're allowed to defend their lives, they're still anticipating that day that our enemies are going to come at us. How is it going to go? Are, are we going to be able to successfully defend our lives? Uh, is, is the second decree going to get revoked? What's going to happen? But every day of the waiting, every day of the anticipation when the enemies get free reign to attack the Jews, the Jews could say to one another, don't forget. Our deliverance is coming too. Don't forget. We have hope. Don't forget. God is going to protect us. Don't forget, we're allowed to defend our lives. Don't forget, don't forget. Remember the good news of deliverance that's coming. This is what we need from one another, is these reminders that don't forget. Don't forget. When you fear, don't forget. When you're worried, don't forget. When, you, when you're thinking that something might change, don't forget. Don't forget. For the sake of our joy in Christ, remind one another. You know, when a brother or sister is experiencing suffering in this life, it's so tempting to point them to a different hope other than the actual deliverance that we have coming for us. You, you know, we, we look at our brother or sister who's sick, 
And, and we want the sickness to go away now. And so it's so tempting to point them to the hope of healing in this life instead of resurrection in the next. We want the crisis to be resolved now. We, we, we hate seeing them in this crisis, so we want to point to a hope of resolution in this life, a hope of resolution now, hope that everything will work out now, instead of pointing them to the hope of Jesus' second coming and the hope of justice then and the hope that he'll make all things new then. But hear this. False hope and unkeepable promises cannot sustain us in our time of exile. They make us feel good in the moment, but when they prove themselves to be unfounded and not actually from the word of God, those false hopes, those unkeepable promises lead to crushed souls. We have something better. We have a real, rock-solid, certain hope that Jesus actually is coming back. That Jesus actually is going to save us. That he actually is going to resurrect us. That he actually is going to make all things new. And what exiles need to hear is about God's true deliverance. They need God's actual deliverance announced to them so that they can bolster their faith. And they can have a greater confidence in their Savior who will deliver them. So follow the instructions that Paul gave in 1 Thessalonians 4, 18. After describing this hope, after describing in detail the second coming of Christ, he says in 1 Thessalonians 4, 18, Therefore, encourage one another with these words. If you want to encourage your brother or sister, encourage them with the words of the actual deliverance God promises at the future return of Christ. That can give us real solid hope in our time of exile. It can give, give us real unstealable joy to announce God's deliverance. Second, participate in God's deliverance. Participate. Let's read Esther 9, verses 1 through 10. Now, in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerosh to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. All the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews, for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them. 
and did as they pleased to those who hated them. In Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men and also killed Parshadatha and Dalphon and Aspatha and Poratha and Adalia and Aridatha and Parmashta and Arisai and Aridai and Vaizatha, the ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. But they laid no hand on the plunder. So on the very day that the Jews were to be annihilated, the reverse occurred. The Jews were able to defend their lives and defeated anyone who tried to come against them. They killed 500 just there in this capital city of Susa, including uh, the ten sons of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And, And all those political leaders who used to pressure Mordecai into bowing down to Haman and who tattled on him when he didn't, Now, they're all afraid of Mordecai because he was so famous and so powerful. Again, behold, the God of reversal. Let's read Esther 9, 11 through 15. That very day, the number of those killed in Susa the citadel was reported to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, In Susa the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and also the ten sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict, and let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done. A decree was issued in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. The Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the 14th day of the month of Adar, and they killed 300 men in Susa, but they laid no hands on the plunder. So after the triumph of the Jews on the 13th day of Adar, Esther asked the king if the Jews there in Susa could defend themselves on the 14th day of Susa as well. Um, And uh, the king commanded it, and the Jews killed another 300 of their enemies there in the capital city. Uh, Let's continue reading verses 16 through 19. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them, but they laid no hands on the plunder. This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th day they rested and made that a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th day and on the 14th day and rested the 15th day, making that a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore, the Jews of the villages who live in the rural towns hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day for gladness and feasting, as a holiday, and as a day on which they send gifts of food to one another. So in total, 75,000 enemies of the Jews were killed because the Jews were allowed to defend themselves. The Jews in Susa, the capital city, defended themselves on the 13th and 14th days, and they rested and rejoiced on the 15th day. The Jews in the rest of the provinces just had to defend themselves on the 13th day, so they rested and rejoiced on the 14th day. And those days are going to matter in a second. We'll see why those days matter uh, when we get to the end of the chapter. Uh, But for now, I just want us to recognize that what we've seen in these verses is the event of God's deliverance. 
this is the event that, that, that all of the events of Esther have been leading up to. This event of God delivering his people. Now, we've seen this deliverance anticipated, right? We saw the need for the deliverance as Haman plotted against the Jews. Uh, we saw Mordecai and Esther put the plan together uh, to request deliverance from the king. And then just a moment ago, we even read about when this deliverance was announced. But now, here we have this actual moment of deliverance. And of course, ultimately, it was God who provided this deliverance. He brought together all of the circumstances that led to this moment. But notice, he didn't send a flood to wash the enemy away. He didn't send lightning or fire and brimstone from heaven to knock out the enemy. God's deliverance looked like the Jews picking up weapons and fighting for themselves. Who knew being delivered by God was going to be such hard work? Nevertheless, as God delivered his people, they participated in his deliverance. And so, as we think about our deliverance, how, how do we participate in God's deliverance today? Well, we obviously don't participate like the Jews did in this story. We don't take up arms and shed the blood of those who try to harm us, okay? Let me be real clear about that. Ephesians 6.12 says we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. No, God's deliverance today is a different kind of deliverance. Well, how then do we participate in God's deliverance? Well, consider the words of Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. What we see in these verses is that God allows us to participate in our deliverance, in our salvation. Now, let me be clear. In Scripture, uh, the Bible talks about salvation in three different stages, if you will. First of all, it talks about salvation uh, in terms of justification. And in justification, God saves us from the penalty of sin. Now, we don't participate in the saving in justification. That is all God's work that we just receive by faith. We don't participate with our works. We don't participate uh, with, with anything that we can be given the credit for. It's all God's work. We just receive it by faith. The last stage of salvation uh, we would call glorification. Uh, and in that, God is going to save us from the very presence of sin. That was the deliverance we were talking about a moment ago when Jesus returns uh, and he makes all things new. That is all God's work. We are not going to make all things new. We are not going to swallow up death forever. We are not going to resurrect ourselves. That's all God's work that we're going to receive by faith. But in between those two stages is a stage called sanctification. And it's a stage in which God saves us from the power of sin in our lives. And in this stage of salvation, in this stage of deliverance, God allows us to participate in his salvation. It is God's work. He saves. He works his salvation in us 
but he allows us to work out that salvation in our lives, as we read in Philippians 2. Well, so what does that look like practically? Let me give you two examples, one for us as individuals and then one for us together as a church. Um, Keep your place in Esther 9 and then turn to Romans 8. Romans 8, 13. Romans 8, 13 says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body... You will live. What I want us to see here is that Jesus is delivering us. He is saving us. He's delivering us from the power of sin in our lives. And he sent the Holy Spirit to empower this deliverance. But we participate with the Holy Spirit when we choose to put our sin to death. When we, in the Spirit's power make a practice of starving our sinful desires, when we repent of our sinful actions, when we replace those things with Christ-like virtues, we are participating in God's deliverance. That's what it looks like practically for us to engage with God as he delivers us from the power of sin. And the reason that that's important is just like the Jews— If they had just sat around and not taken up swords, they wouldn't have been delivered. That wasn't God's means of delivering them. God's means of deliverance was them picking up swords and defending their lives against those who came at them. Likewise, you won't be sanctified if you sit and don't pick up your sword. You will not. God invites us to participate with him in deliverance. And this process of sanctification is his work and our work. And he invites us to participate in it, and he empowers us to do it. It's not just true for individuals, though. Um, Yes, God is delivering individuals and allowing us as individuals to participate in that. It also works at a corporate level in the church. Turn with me to the second to last book of the Bible, Jude. Look at verses 20 through 23. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Again, just like we saw with the individual, uh, as we can say collectively, Jesus is delivering us from the power of sin in our lives. He's delivering, and again, he sent the Holy Spirit to empower this deliverance, but we participate with the Holy Spirit by building each other up. By praying together, come to the prayer service, (laughs) 
on March, uh, the second Sunday of March, and we can live out Jude together. We are called to do life together in such a way that we are pushing one another toward God's love. We're called to live life together in such a way where we're demonstrating God's mercy to one another. And when we call one another out on sin, and when we go after those who are unrepentant, like we're snatching them out of a fire, we're actually participating in God's deliverance. God's delivering, but he allows us to participate. Not only in his deliverance of us, but in his deliverance of others. So participate in God's deliverance. The second way that we can celebrate God's deliverance. Finally, third, remember God's deliverance. Remember God's deliverance. Turn back with me to Esther 9. Let's read verses 20 through 22. And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month of Adar, and also the 15th day of the same, year by year, as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies, and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness, and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. Uh, The Jews, of course, naturally celebrated their deliverance in the days immediately after, uh, but Mordecai wrote to them, instructing them to keep these same two days, the 14th and 15th days, there they are, of Adar, uh, to keep those two days every year as an event to remember Every year on these days, they were to remember the reversal that God worked for them. How God gave them relief from their enemies. How God turned their sorrow into gladness. How he turned the days of mourning into a holiday. Well, let's read more about this holiday in Esther 9, 23 through 32. So the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, The enemy of all the Jews had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast poor, that is, cast lots, to crush and to destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head and that he and his son should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore, they called these days Purim, after the term Pur. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter and of what they had faced in this matter and of what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written and at the time appointed every year, that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation and every clan, province, and city, and that these days of Purim should never fail into disuse among the Jews nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihail, and Mordecai, the Jew, gave full written authority, confirming this second letter about Purim, 
letters were sent to all the Jews to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus in words of peace and truth, that these days of Purim should be observed as their appointed seasons, as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther obligated them, and as they had obligated themselves and their offspring with regard to their fasts and their lamenting. The command of Esther confirmed these practices of Purim, and it was recorded in writing. So all the Jews throughout all the Persian Empire agreed to keep the 14th and 15th days of Adar as an annual feast to remember God's amazing act of deliverance. They committed to instruct their children and grandchildren to keep this uh, holiday um, for coming generations. And what did they decide to call the holiday? The Feast of Purim. Haman, the enemy of the Jews, had cast Pur, the ancient dice, which determined that it would be the 13th day of the month of Adar. That would be the day when the Jews would be annihilated. But of course, the reverse happened. The 13th day of Adar became a day not of annihilation, but a day of salvation, a day of deliverance. And so the poor, the very item that was used against the Jews, became the emblem of their salvation. Remember the words of Proverbs 16.33, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. In God's providence, the day that the poor selected now kicks off a celebration of the Jews' deliverance. Well, let's read the last three verses of this book, Esther 10, verses 1 through 3. King Ahasuerus imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea, and all the acts of his power and might, and the full account of the high honor of Mordecai, to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia, for Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus, and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers, for he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. Back in Esther 3.1, the king promoted Haman above all his other servants. Well, now in one final statement of reversal, we see that the king promoted Mordecai to be second in command over all the Persian empire. In this final portion of Esther, we see the reason why the book of Esther exists. Esther is the backstory of the Feast of Purim. If a little Jewish girl were to go up to her father and say, Daddy, why do we celebrate Purim? He would say, let me tell you the story of Esther. Purim was established so that the Jews would never forget God's deliverance. And the book of Esther was written to preserve the details of the story so that generation after generation of Jews could remember how God preserved them by his providence. It is good to remind ourselves of God's deliverance. It is good because we need to remember. We need the hope of remembering what God has done in the past. You can imagine how hope-giving this story would be for the generations of Jews that came after these Jews. And how life-giving 
the reminder of what God did in the past was. Uh, It should come as no surprise that the book of Esther was banned in Nazi Germany. To find a copy of the book of Esther in a concentration camp was a death sentence. But you can see why. Because this is an amazing story of God delivering his people from an evil enemy. And you can see why it would be worth risking your life to take this book with you and to have it near your heart. Because when we are reminded of God's deliverance in the past, it gives us hope and confidence and steals our spine in the present. We need reminders of God's grace because we are forgetful people. We need to remember what God has done for us in Christ. By establishing Purim, Esther and Mordecai were following the pattern of the feasts that were established in the law of Moses, feasts like Passover, which the Jews observed in order to remember how God delivered his people from Egypt. And here again, God delivered his people from their enemies, and Esther and Mordecai knew it would be important for the people to remember this event. Every year, the Feast of Purim was a way to say, don't forget what God has done for you. Jesus has given us a feast to remember as well. Jesus gave us the Lord's Supper as our regular reminder of how he delivered us. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he gave thanks and he broke the bread and he said, this is my body for you. He took a cup and he said, this cup is the blood of the new covenant. And he took these items that symbolized his own death, but established them as the emblems of our salvation to remind us of the death that he died in order to purchase eternal salvation, eternal deliverance for us. So that every time we eat the bread, every time we drink the cup, it's as if we're saying, don't forget what God did for you at the cross. We need to be reminded of what Jesus did for us at the cross. And we also need to be reminded of how what he did at the cross came to change our lives. Do you remember? Remember that first moment when God opened your eyes and cut through the darkness of your sin and your selfishness and the way that you had been living your life apart from Christ? And do you remember when he broke in that moment you trusted in Jesus? And he took you to himself, and he washed you, and he reassured your heart that you belong to him. Do you remember when he delivered you? Do you remember maybe a moment you were facing suffering, and you were tempted to give in to anger and resentment? And and that same grace that reached you in your darkest place came back afresh and, and it grabbed your heart again. 
that grace that enabled you to trust in Christ on day one came and it, and it held you. And he delivered you from your unbelief. He delivered you from your hopelessness. And the blood of Christ was applied again. Do you remember when you had fallen into sin and you were tempted to just run and hide in shame and anxiety? But then you remembered that blood that washed you clean the first time and that it has not lost any of its power. And then it can cleanse you today and tomorrow and the next day again and again and again. Do you remember when he delivered you? It is good to remind ourselves of God's deliverance. We need regular, frequent reminders because God is a good God who delivers his people. Remember God's deliverance because God's deliverance is worth celebrating. When we started this series through Esther, I shared with you how God was seemingly missing from the story of Esther. God's never mentioned. God never speaks. No one ever talks about God. No one prays to God. The narrator never tells us what God is doing. But I hope now that you see just how clearly God puts himself on display in the book of Esther. Where is God? He's in the dark. He's using corrupt powers to bring about his purposes. He's using compromised saints to bring about the deliverance of his people. He's using quiet faithfulness to change the world. Where is God? God's in the obstacles. Even as enemies are opposing his plan, he is using their efforts to carry out his plan. Not even you can get in the way of God's plan. Where is God? God's in the reversal. Just when it seems like things are going to go one way and they couldn't possibly change, God reverses the outcome. He humbles the proud and he gives grace the humble. Where is God? Ultimately, God is in the deliverance. He keeps his promises. He preserves his people. He gives his people something worth celebrating. And it's in that spirit that we come to the table today to remember what Christ has done for us, to deliver us from our sins in the past, to remember the blood that is at work today delivering us from the power of sin and to proclaim Jesus' death until he returns, anticipating the day that he is going to save us from the very presence of sin by the same cross that delivered us from the penalty of sin and that is saving us from the power of sin today. This sacred time 
at the Lord's table is for believers, uh, those who have rested all their hope on the death and resurrection of Christ. And so if you're not yet a believer, we would ask that you refrain from partaking uh, from the Lord's Supper today, refrain until you come to faith in Christ, and then we would love for you to join us at the table. We encourage those of you who are uh, believers uh, to examine your hearts so that you can partake in a worthy manner. If your heart is harboring unrepentant sin that you're not willing to let go of, we would ask you to refrain until you can come freely to partake. Uh, but if you are a member of the body of Christ, if you have been delivered by the blood of Jesus, Jesus invites you to his table. Uh, this is a meal not just for our local body, but for the global body of Christ. And so if you're a baptized member of a gospel-preaching church in good standing, we would invite you to come and participate with us um, at the Lord's table. In a moment, I'm going to pray. And then uh, while the elements, um, uh, or excuse me, um, we'll sing a song, and during that time, as you're ready, you can come and receive the elements, take them back to your seat, and just hold on to them so that we can all participate together um, after everybody's been served and after the song is over. Let's pray together. Father, as we bow our heads, we remember how Jesus bowed his head and gave up his spirit. We remember what he did to deliver us from sin, to deliver us from the penalty of sin, the power of sin, and even the presence of sin. We're grateful for the deliverance of the past. We're grateful for the ways you're delivering us in the present. And Lord, we long for the day that your final deliverance comes, that Jesus returns, that every eye sees him, and we have a, a feast and a celebration like the world has never seen. Until that day, Lord, we come to the table to remember, to proclaim, to anticipate. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.